Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. And uh, excited we're uh, coming to the conclusion of uh, verse 8. Woo! Please contain your excitement out, out there. Uh, but uh, we've been walking slowly through verse 8 and uh, coming to the very end of it today. And then next week, we're going to wrap up uh, with the last two uh, sessions looking at verse 9. And that will kind of conclude this whole study, uh, which is both exciting and kind of sad. Uh, but we're looking at verse 8 <clears throat> this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, uh, this is what Paul writes. <clears throat> he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, again, as we've been walking through this, and I think I've said this every single time, uh, but just for the sake of reminder, uh, this idea of whatever is not a limitation. Uh, this is a freedom kind of a thing. Uh, you are free to think about whatever you want in this realm. Uh, there is no limitations. There is no restrictions. This is, hey, there is freedom in the reality of thinking. And so, yeah, there are boundaries, but there's freedom in the boundaries. And you need boundaries. And it's amazing. The moment you get some boundaries, it actually frees you up uh, to live and just to, just to go crazy. And that's kind of the idea that Paul has here in Philippians 4. Again, we've been walking through these. We've looked at what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable. And then the last time we looked at this idea of excellence. And I, I think I mentioned this in passing, but some scholars suggest that this idea of excellence and that which is praiseworthy is the summary of the previous six. And if you want to go that direction, that's totally fine. Uh, but it is interesting that he kind of shifts the language a little bit in these last two. It's the whatever, 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 whatever. And then in these last ones, he says, if or since there are things that are excellent, or if or since there are things that are worthy of praise, think on these things. Uh, so it's interesting. It's kind of this conditional clause kind of a thing. <clears throat> uh, praiseworthy is the one we're looking at this morning. Uh, the word praiseworthy is the is Greek word epinos. Uh, and and here's, a, here's a simple definition. It's that which invokes praise, something worthy of high commendation, approval, recognition, something that is praiseworthy. And what is interesting is the connotation this has, the word itself, again, just like the word excellent, this was a very common word in the classical Greek days. Uh, so this word just shows up all over the place. Uh, it was a common idea of, hey, I recognize you. Oh, hey, well done. Uh, this, this idea of giving praise. But the word has this idea, which I just thought was interesting, that it denotes recognizing what is good and true and showing approval of it. In other words, somehow you see that which is good and that which is true, and when you recognize the goodness or that which is true, 
then you affirm it. You, you give praise for it. It's, it's that idea. <clears throat> now, again, I find it interesting that as we talked about last time, the word excellence, uh, the word excellent has this idea that it was used all over Greek, but in the Bible, it's like it narrows its focus down and it's really limited in Scripture. Same idea here in praiseworthy. This word is all over the place in, in the Greek literature, but as you come to the Bible, get this, it is only used five times in the Old Testament. Four of those times in the Old Testament, it's specifically referring to God, that he is worthy of praise. One time, it's used to refer to a human in the Old Testament, and it's in the negative. And let me give you the passage, because I just think it's sadly funny. Uh, talking of Jehoram, right, the king, in Second Chronicles 21.20, it says that he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years, and he departed with no one's regret, which is that word. He departed with no one's praise. He, re- he departed with no approval or commendation. What is it saying? It means when he died, every, everyone just went, praise the Lord. <laughs> that no one was sad when he died. Hopefully that's not speaking about any of us, you know? Isn't that weird? Or funny? I don't, I don't know what term you want to use. So five times that word shows up in the Old Testament. Four is specifically referring to God. One time it talks about a human, but that's not a good case. Now, as you come into the New Testament, the word shows up 11 times in the New Testament. And what's interesting, of the 11 times that it shows up in the New Testament, one time is obviously here in our passage that we are to think on things that are praiseworthy, which leaves 10 other times. When you look at the 10 other times, five of those refer to praise of God, that he is worthy of praise. So half of them is speaking specifically of God. The other half, the other five, is referring to humans. And two of the five, God gives praise or approval or recognition to what humans have done. Which I found interesting, that God is giving praise. Now, we're not talking worship. you, you got to differentiate those. In other words, we do not worship humans. Hello? <laughs> I know it's early in the morning, but... Right? We don't worship humans. But hey, you know, don't we all appreciate a little bit of praise once in a while, though? Approval? Just accommodation? Or the, uh, the, the commendation idea? Where, hey, you do something really well, and someone says, hey, I really appreciate that. What is it? That's praise. Uh, when you come home and you get an A on your report card, or for some of you, you're already at home, and so your mom hands you the report card... And when you get the A and your mom goes, woo, well done. What is it? That's called praise. And doesn't that just make you feel good? And it's just, now it can easily become prideful. I get that. But you, you realize that there's nothing wrong with praise itself. Hey, when, when we get up as Christians before the judgment seat of Christ, do you realize what Jesus is going to say? If you're, if you're a believer, he's going to give praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? So, so there's nothing wrong in the sense of giving praise. We're not talking worship, though. So when you look at this idea of, of praise, this, word, uh, this idea or word praiseworthy, 
Ten times outside of our passage, it shows up. Five times it speaks of God. The other five times it speaks of humans. Two of those are from God. And three of those uh, are praise for other people. So really, there's, there's these two, if you want to say it this way, there are two directions of this idea of praise. One is toward others. The other one is toward God. And let me flesh them out really quick for, for all of us. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be interesting if you as a believer were constantly looking for the good and the truth in the lives of the people around you? In other words, it goes back to the idea that the, the idea of the word praiseworthy is recognizing what is good and true and then showing approval of it. So what would it look like as a Christian then to keep our eyes open to the world around us saying, oh, Lord, could you, could you reveal and the people around me, that which is good and true, well, that means you're going to have to know what is good and true. And you realize what that's going to demand for you, if you're going to recognize that which is good and true, is you're going to have to have a standard for good and true, which is the Word of God. So, so what if you got so wrapped up in this book that this became the definition in your life for what is good and what is true? That the basis, the standard the, the boundary of that which is good, the standard of that which is true is found in here, in, in God's word. And then wouldn't it be amazing as, as you just went out in your life, when you began to see the realities of Christ in someone else's life, you would speak into that? I mean, wouldn't it just be encouraging? You, you see someone and they're just, they're pouring their life out and they're just all wrapped up in Jesus and they're just, man, they're just all excited for what God is doing. Could you imagine walking up to that person just saying, wow, I just, I see Jesus inside of you. And I just, I just want to encourage you to keep going. Man, I just approve of you going crazy about Jesus. And you're recognizing, you're seeing something that is good and true, which better be Jesus, because he is the ultimate definition. He's the fullness of goodness and truth. That when you see the reality of Christ and the standard of the word being lived out in someone's life, we as fellow believers would come alongside that and speak into that and give them praise. I'm not talking worship. I'm talking encouragement, exhortation. By the way, you are commanded to do that. Let me give you a couple of verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are also doing. Hey, what are you called as a, as a believer to do? Encourage and edify and build one another up. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to have to be keeping your eyes open, looking for stuff. And when you see the reality of Christ, even if it's just a hint or a glimmer, a seed of the life of Jesus, speak into that. Encourage that. Does that make sense? Are you awake? Okay, just checking. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Uh, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. In Hebrews 10, this is, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meaning together, as in the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Folks, that day is drawing nearer. I mean, hey, we're getting closer and closer to the end. We're a lot closer than the days of the writer of Hebrews. And so if he's saying, as you're seeing the days getting nearer, 
You, we need to be encouraging each other more and more. How much more today? And then he says, hey, don't forsake the gathering of the believers. Hey, we should delight in spending time with one another. Why? Because it should be a place of encouragement. Could you imagine going back to your churches and just living in your homes and just, hey, every time you see someone, you're like, hey, how can I build them up? How can I encourage them? How, how can I exhort them unto Jesus Christ? How, how can I just breathe what God's been doing in my life into their life? How, how can I encourage? How can I just lift them up? How can I build them? How can I? Romans 15, verse 2. Uh, this is the Amplified. I like, I like how the Amplified says this. Romans 15, 2 says, Let each of us make it a practice to please or make happy or to encourage his neighbor for his good and for his true welfare, to edify him, to strengthen him and build him up spiritually. Well, what are you called to do? Encourage, edify, strengthen, build up. Just go. <clears throat> a couple of verses later, in Romans 15, verse 5, Paul kind of is bringing this up to a conclusion. He says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. He says, do you know what God is doing? He is giving you patience, this idea of perseverance, and encouragement. Oh, and that he would grant that in your life too. So not only is he giving it to you, but then he wants to produce that through you. So do you realize that there's this idea that one of the directions, if you want to use that language, of praise, we're not talking worship, we're just, hey, the encouragement, the edification, the exhortation is toward other people around us. So what if we as believers sought as our privilege to speak forth the praise of the people around us? And we actually saw the reality of what Christ was doing. Again, that means you have to get in the word. But as you saw goodness and you saw truth being produced in someone's life, you spoke into that and would just encourage and edify them. Now, the other direction should make a ton of sense to you because it's the one that we often talk about, which is this idea of praising God. And you realize ultimately he is the one who is truly worthy of all praise. And it's not just praising, it's worship. Uh, he himself is the one who is intrinsically in and of himself good and true, which means we can praise him all the time that we're recognizing, we're turning our gaze upon the Lord, and we're constantly gazing at the fact that he is good and true. I mean, he's the fullness of goodness. He is truth itself. And as such, there should just be a continual offering of praise, which is one of the reasons why we're constantly declaring God's names and his attributes and his promises. Why? Because we are speaking forth and declaring the praise and the wonder of who he is. Why? Because he's good. He is true. I love uh, three of the times that this word praiseworthy shows up, right? There's 11 times in the New Testament. Three of those times shows up in Ephesians chapter 1. And it's in the blessing section. And here's these blessings that God is just lavishing upon our lives. And three times it says in verse 6 and verse 12 and verse 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul says that all these blessings have been dumped in your life for the praise, that's the word, of his glory. How are you to live? For the praise of his glory. Well, how am I supposed to talk? To the praise of his glory. 
And uh, if you were following the Ephesians studies, we, we walked through that. But wouldn't it be fascinating if your whole life was a melody of praise unto Jesus? I mean, wouldn't it just be phenomenal if your life was this musical, was the language I used when I was studying Ephesians, was a musical declaring the wonder of, of God himself. That when someone would look at your life, what they would hear is this anthem declaring his praise. And everything you did was just constantly, oh, God, you're so good. Man, Jesus, I love you. Oh, isn't he phenomenal? Just oh, look at the sunrise. This is, God, you're so good. And your life is just this constant declaration and anthem and musical of praise unto Jesus. By the way, do you know what we call people who live like that? Yeah, we call those people Christians. And by the way, that idea is all throughout Scripture. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for his glory. Or in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Or a few verses later, Paul says in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for people, knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. See, see, what if the whole declaration of your life was Jesus? See, what if someone would look at your life and just go, wow, you're just, you are obsessed with Jesus. Man, it's just like everything you talk about comes back to Jesus. Everything you think about comes back to Jesus. Everything you do just somehow comes back to Jesus. Yes, I am a Christian. So if I go play disc golf, I better play disc golf with Jesus. Aaron says amen. All right. <clears throat> I mean, just what, what, if, what, what if everything in your life was just a declaration of Jesus? And you live for the praise of him. So as we look at this passage in Philippians 4, 8, there seems, again, there's these two directions of the praise. One is that we're, we're keeping our eyes open to see the goodness and the truth in the lives of the people around us, and we are giving encouragement and exhortation to the people around us to, hey, keep going. This is good, and let us encourage one another as the day approaches. But then the other direction is, what if your life was a constant anthem and praise this declaration to God himself. Sounds like a Christian, doesn't it? <clears throat> well, I want to take that idea, and I want to give you eight practical thoughts. And I know preachers are not supposed to have anything more than three. <laughs> However, as I was fleshing this out, I'm like, well, there's eight of them. So... Uh, <laughs> And there probably could be a whole lot more, but I was trying to take this idea of what does it mean to live a life of praise? What does it mean to have this anthem of praise? What does it mean to just have this life that's just this constant declaration of praise unto our Lord? Because again, if you look at the Philippians 4.8 idea, if we were to think upon the things that are praiseworthy, if we were to fill up our minds with that which is praiseworthy, well, what does that mean? And so let me just give you eight quick ideas. Number one, you realize that a life of praise is before the world around you. In other words, it, it's demonstrated to the world. <clears throat> what would it look like if your life exhibited the goodness and the truth of Jesus Christ? 
that when the world looked upon you, they saw him. It's interesting, two of the characters of the Old Testament that nothing bad is ever said about. In other words, I love the Bible because it speaks the truth of a person's life. Like Noah got drunk, Moses murdered. I love the fact that it's truthful. And yet there are two characters in Scripture where nothing negative is said about them. One is Joseph and one is Daniel. There's a couple others, but those two specifically. And it's interesting, both of them at a young age, I think they were both around 17, were taken off by a foreign power, right? Joseph was sold into slavery to Egypt. Daniel was taken into captivity into Babylon. And as they grew up in that culture, the person, the most powerful person in the world in both of their days, so the Pharaoh in the time of Joseph, Nebuchadnezzar, or the um, king, what were they called? Emperors, kings, anyway, the king, in Babylon, when the Pharaoh looked at Joseph and the king looked at Daniel, both of them said this, these are men in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And that was Old Testament. Before the Spirit was poured out in, in totality. So obviously they had something. And you realize what you have access to is far better than what even they have ac- had, had access to. Because you now have the indwelling Holy Spirit for life. But isn't it fascinating that both of these men lived in such a way that when the world power looked upon their life, the declaration was, wow, God is upon their life. Wow, they're living so righteously and godly in in this age surrounded by worldliness. Wouldn't it be phenomenal if that was said about you? Could the, could the onlooking world look at your life in the midst of the darkness and, and the culture in which we live and just say, wow, they are one in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And you are giving, given praise or accommodate, uh, commendation or you're giving some sort of a wow because of how you're living in Jesus. It's interesting. One of the words of those 11 times that shows up in the New Testament is 1 Peter chapter 2. And, and listen to what Peter says. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority, or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bondservant of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And there's an interesting tone in the passage where Peter says, live in such a way that even the magistrates, even the governors would look at your life and give praise for how you're living rightly. Wouldn't that be amazing if that happened in this world? That the way that you lived in Christ Jesus and so full of his goodness and truth and his life would be so evident to the world around you that even the pagan world around us would look at your life and just go, wow, they are Christians. And they would actually give praise because they'd have nothing negative to say. That we lived above reproach. That there, that there isn't something, some evil that we're trying to hide that the world can scrutinize and find like, oh yeah, they call themselves Christians, but just look. What if there was nothing like that to say in your life? What if God did such a work in your life and you were living with such holiness and righteousness 
that the onlooking world, like Joseph and Daniel, would, would only have a, would come to the conclusion, wow, they, they must be Christians. Do you realize that results in a life of praise unto Jesus? Because the world sees Jesus in you. Uh, number two, this just tickled me. Do you realize that praise has a variety of expressions? Uh, when you look at this idea of praise in the Psalms, it's used nearly 140 times just in the book of Psalms. Not, not our word, just the, the term praise. And as you walk through the book of Psalms, praise has a variety of expressions. You ready for a short list? L- listen to this. If your life is to be an anthem unto Jesus, if your life is to be praiseworthy unto the Lord, you realize it does not have to look just like the person next to you. So here, here are some expressions in the book of Psalms. Psalm 18, verse 49. Sing praises. And I'm, I'm just giving you this simplified concept. You can look up the verses later if you want. Uh, Psalm 33, 1. Shout! Uh, Psalm 35, 28. Proclaim! Psalm 47, 1. Clap! Mm-hmm. Are you getting this? Clap your hands, all you people. Peoples. Shout for joy with a voice. Shout to God with a voice of joy. That praise is done with singing, shouting, proclaiming, clapping. So even you people who, no, I'm not saying. (laughs) I wasn't trying to get you to clap. I was just, I was trying to encourage you who had no rhythm that it's still okay for you to clap your hands. It may drive us crazy in worship, but hey, you you can still do it. Psalm 65 verse 1. Be silent in your praise, that it's okay to be quiet. Psalm 119, verse 108, accept my free will offerings of praise. Psalm 134, verse 2, lift up your hands in praise. Psalm 149, verse 3, praise his name with dancing. Woo! Please stay seated. Uh, Psalm 150, all over the place in Psalm 150, it's a short Psalm, but it, praise him with a trumpet, praise him with a harp and a lyre, praise him with a tambourine and dancing, praise him with string instruments and the flute, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Are you getting this? There is a variety of expressions of praise. So do them all. Don't be limited in how you praise. That as you turn your gaze upon the Lord, just go crazy for Jesus. And yes, sometimes that means you should probably be silent before the Lord. And sometimes maybe that means you bring out your big gong and start banging that thing to the pleasure of your family. (laughs) And when your family's like, stop that racket, you'll be like, I'm just praising the Lord. (laughs) You know? So go crazy in this. Uh, And you could be like David and strip down and embarrass your wife, but maybe not publicly. Uh, that is awkwardly true. Uh, (laughs) Amen. We're not going to do that this morning during worship. (laughs) Sorry, Silas. Uh, (laughs) Number, sorry. (laughs) Number three. We should move forward. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
So realize that your praise, this idea of a life of praise is demonstrated before the world. Realize that praise has a variety of expressions. Number three, realize that this idea of praise is demonstrated by your faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. For by it, the people of old gained approval. They gained praise. That the world looked upon the faith of those classic Christians or the, or the classic believers in the Old Testament, and they just went, wow, that's what it looks like. What if that was true in your life too? That the way that you lived by faith became this anthem of praise unto the Lord. That the onlooking world saw your faith and was dumbfounded by the reality of Jesus. Number four is this idea of praise in light of your salvation. Do you realize what he's done in your life? Most of us see our salvation as such a little minuscule thing when in reality, praise, I mean, our salvation is immense, folks. When you look at Matthew chapter 18, there's this parable given where there's this man who was forgiven a debt of uh, 15, there's some more than that. How many talents was it? It was 10,000 talents, thank you. And when you look at the idea of 10,000 talents, one talent was 15 years of human labor, which means this man owed the king 150,000 years of human labor. And when he was forgiven, you realize he did not respond properly because he went out to someone who owed him 200 days worth of labor and demanded it. Hello, if you were forgiven 150,000 years of human labor, you should have been floating you should have just been in awe. I mean, if you've ever had debt and you had a debt finally paid off, you're like, oh, you just start, you start skipping everywhere. You, you just can't help but smile. Why? I'm free. If you owed someone 150,000 years of human labor and it was just psst, forgiven, wouldn't it just cause you to be, wow. And you realize that what God has done in our life with sin is far more than even that that we deserved an eternity in hell. That even just one lie was enough to send us to hell for eternity. And yet, I know all of us have done far more than one lie. But what did God do? In his tremendous love for us, Christ died for us. If we actually saw that reality, wouldn't that just cause us to turn our gaze heavenward and just constantly praise him? David, when God slew his enemies, David made this declaration in 2 Samuel 22. David says, <clears throat> it says, now David spoke the, the words of this song to the Lord on the day that the Lord saved him from the hands of all of his enemies and from the hands of Saul. This is, this is what David said when he saw his salvation. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the ways of death encompassed me, the floods of destruction terrified me, the ropes of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. But in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I called out to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. If you actually saw what God has done in your life, in your own salvation, 
Shouldn't that just cause just a buoyancy of soul and an adoration of worship that would just utter forth in your life to the one who is worthy to be praised? And number five, praise comes even in the midst of suffering. 1 Peter 1, again, has another time where this word is used, this praiseworthy word. And uh, in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, listen to what Peter says. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, that's the word, glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That somehow the way that you handle your suffering, do you realize actually causes praise unto the Lord. So how are you going to handle your sufferings, your trials, your tribulations? That when you triumph in tribulation, when you, when you face the difficulties well and you delight in the, in the challenges that God gives you, do you realize it actually allows the onlooking world and your own soul to praise? Uh, number six, there's this idea of praise for victory amidst temptation. What would it look like when you were being tempted for you to turn your gaze not upon the temptation, but upon the victor? That somehow, think about this, if you're going to live a life of praise, wouldn't it be amazing to start praising God for victory even before you had the victory? Because you know the victory was sure. See, most of us, when we face temptation, we're like, oh no, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I've always given in. I, I, God, can you, can you rescue me? Do you realize he's already won? He's already defeated the temptation at the cross. He's already triumphed. He is a conqueror. He is the victor. So what if, in the middle of the temptation, in the middle of the trial, what if, rather than looking at the temptation, what if we would turn our gaze upon the victor and say, Lord, I, I thank you and praise you that you have already won this battle and that I can walk in triumph and victory, not because I have anything in and of myself, but because you have already won. And so, Lord, I am going to take my life and live it in such a way as if I already had the victory, because in you I do. And what if praise and worship became the secret to triumph in your life? What if praise and thanksgiving was how you were able to face every trial and temptation? And what if you could walk in victory and triumph and freedom from this point forward because you kept your gaze steadfast upon him, the one who has already conquered sin, death, and hell? Doesn't that just sound fun? So rather than waiting till you actually have some sort of a victory to give God praise, why don't you realize you already have the victory in Christ because of the cross and start giving him praise now in the midst of the temptation? Do you know how hard it is to give into temptation when you're thanking God for the victory? Do you know how hard it is to give into temptation when you're praising him for the triumph that you can walk in? Lord, I know I can, Lord, I know I can be a victor because I have youth. Lord, thank you. I do not have to give into this temptation. It's really hard to think, but I'm going to give in to the temptation. Folks, praise and worship and thanksgiving is a secret to battling the difficulties of life. Uh, I, I won't read through all this, but in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat is surrounded by the Moabites and the Ammonites. 
And so he goes to prayer and he ends up, when he goes into battle, setting, think about how crazy this is. He sets the worshipers at the front before all the army people. And who was leading the, leading the charge into the battle? Those who were doing the worship. Why? Because God promised victory. Do you realize the same thing is true in your life? God has promised victory. So what if you would set your soul to be out front in praise and worship? Number seven, we're almost done. Number seven, do you realize that you can choose praise regardless of your circumstances? We're not talking about do you feel like you're in a position to praise. We're not asking if you have the emotion to praise. You can still choose to praise. That you can turn your gaze upon the Lord. That you can put your trust in him whether or not you feel it and live accordingly. That this is not based on circumstances. This is not based on emotion. This is based on him and his character. And lastly, number eight. Can I remind you? Jesus is truly the only one worthy of praise. That yes, there are two directions of praise and we should praise and encourage and exhort one another, but we should do it because we see Jesus in them, not because of them. Do you see the difference? What if I would encourage Jesus in the lives of the people around me? But folks, your life is to be an anthem unto Jesus. Your life is to be a medley unto Jesus. Your life is to be a musical declaration unto Jesus because he alone is the one worthy of praise. So when Paul says, think on that which is praiseworthy, fill your mind with Jesus. Just go crazy with Jesus. Look for Jesus in the, in the lives of the people around you and encourage that. 2 Samuel 22, 4, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. He's the one worthy to be praised. Psalm 18, verse 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. He is the one worthy to be praised. There's that old hymn by Charles Wesley, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Let me read you the first and the fifth verse, just in closing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Verse 5 says, To God all glory, praise, and love be now and ever given by saints below and saints above, the church and earth and heaven. He deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. And when Paul says, Think upon that which is praiseworthy, he has given you permission to just go crazy about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. You are worthy to be praised. <clears throat> Lord, I do pray that not only would our life just be an anthem, a declaration of praise unto you, but Lord, could you allow us to open our, open our eyes, open our ears, and recognize you, the fullness of goodness and truth in the lives of those around us. And Lord, I pray that when we see your life, even in kernel stages in the lives of of those around us, that we would speak into that and encourage and exhort and edify, that we would build up the body of Christ, especially as the day approaches. But Lord, let us not get so wrapped up in the person that we don't see you. Lord, let us 
if, that, if we're going to encourage and edify, let us speak into the reality of us seeing you in them. But, oh, Lord, may our lives be to the praise of your glory. Lord, whether it's through sufferings, whether it's just before an onlooking world, whether it's by how we live in our faith, no matter the version or the variety of praise that comes out of us, whether it's silence or clapping or dancing or singing or shouting or clanging cymbals, Lord, could our whole life be unto you. Could our lives be from you and through you and to you for your praise, glory, and renown alone. Lord, could everything that comes out of our life just be worship unto you. And Lord, if we do receive praise from the world around us, let it not be because of our talent. Let it not be because of our abilities or our wisdom. May the one thing that the world can praise us for is because they see you. And like a Joseph and like a Daniel, may the world be dumbfounded that the only explanation for our life is you. And Lord, this morning, we, we do want to worship. We, we want to set our gaze upon you. And we don't want to just go through some motions and we don't even want to say some words. We, we want to praise you from the very depths of our being because you are worthy to be praised. So Lord, would, would you grab our attention? Would you just suck us in? Would you breathe upon us afresh? And may we be, be so overwhelmed by the reality of your life that we can't help but just sing forth the praises to our King. Lord, we love you. You are so good and you are so worthy of not just our lives, but everything. And so Lord, receive our praise that is rightly due you. We love you, Jesus. Give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen.